Hello and welcome to the Rugby Post, the podcast that gives you the fans' perspective. I am your host, Josh Matthews, and I'm joined by my good friend, Mike Pachetta. How are you today, Mike? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? You well? Yep, I'm really good, thank you. Really enjoyed all the rugby at the weekend. So we've got a lot, a lot to talk about today. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to remind listeners that coming this weekend, we've got our panel show in which we've invited members of our friends and family to come on and talk about the rule change this year for the Premiership Rugby in that there'll be no promotion relegation and the potential for ring fencing the top league of professional rugby in this country moving forward. Yeah, so, really excited about that. We've got some fantastic characters coming on, each person with you know their own individual take on what could happen. So yeah, listening to that one. Yep, so hopefully that'll come this Saturday. Um, so anybody listening, look out this Saturday for our will be our fourth episode. Obviously, there's a, a break weekend in the Six Nations, so we thought we'd give you a bit of a bonus um, so as not to miss out on anything. So without further ado, let's get into talking about the weekend that we've just seen. England versus Sicily, first game on Saturday. From an Italian fan's perspective, what did you think of the game, given what you'd seen the previous week? Some positive and negatives to take out of it, for sure. I think there's some stupid issues that keep occurring. From an Italian perspective, some some maybe some inexperience, maybe maybe some naivety from from some of the Italian players in terms of how they choose to play against teams like England and France, uh, arguably being you know two of the best teams in the world. And again, I'm only going to bring this up once, and I'm not going to say it again. Hopefully for the rest of the tournament. But we spoke the other week about you know rub of the green, and looking back, I think there's definitely some occasions where you know if the call may have gone the other way we would have seen a much tighter score line in terms of the, the physical score but you know it's rugby it can go either way I'm not going to say it again but unfortunately I think it you know Italy weren't ever going to win that game but it might have flattered them slightly more than a 23 point loss. So it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about this earlier today you know it was 23 points but if you think that you know, Anthony Watson scores an interception try at a point when Italy were looking quite threatening, you know, towards England's 22, so building towards trying to score. And, you know, if you take off that seven points and, and you know, there's no, no way you can say that Italy would have scored, but if they had done, that's that's a 14-point swing. You know, that's a big difference in the game. Um, and I, had, I remember we spoke, quite frankly, about the game on, on Saturday. I have said to you, I don't think England were 23 points better than Italy for me on the day. I thought Italy played with some real attacking flair, with some invention, with some, you know, they they wanted to attack England and it was really refreshing to see them do that. Yeah, and I think from my sort of initial perspective of the game, I thought Italy were well beat. I obviously watched the game uh, again this morning and there was a few sort of contentious points raised during the weekend from, you know, non-England fans. I know everyone likes taking a shot at England, but I looked back and I actually looked for what they were trying to say from the first and second try. So the first try, um, you know, there was a forward pass. Take that out. Obviously, England probably going to score anyway, so you can't you can't say that that's seven points gone. But you know, scrum Italy put in could have been a very different outcome there. That's seven points from the scoreline gone. The second try, um, obviously, the 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 ball uh, was actually knocked off. So again, seven points. You know, Italy get to clear the lines. England probably would have come back and scored anyway. But these little things against a team like Italy like make a massive difference. 
do you know what as well? I'd be interested to see your thoughts on this. This might seem like a bit of a silly thing to say, but there is sort of logic behind it, I hope, is that Italy scoring as early in the game as they did, I wonder if that actually in the end had a negative impact in the sense that it meant England then had to come out and play, it woke England up. They then had to come out and play some attacking rugby. And actually, they did, I think, play a lot more attacking rugby this week than they had in previous weeks. You know, we've spoken about lineups and, and bits and pieces. I would like to have seen some different younger players in there this weekend. But I think that England played with you know, a lot more attacking intent than they have done recently. So I just wondered if you think that possibly that early try, did it wake England up, do you think? We talk about the galvanising effect and it'd be interesting to see sort of how much of this was directed from Eddie. Maybe he actually just said, go out and express yourselves. And that's what we saw on the pitch. We saw England expressing themselves with the perceived best team out. On the other hand, we could have seen, you know, maybe England, the players making sort of the conscientious effort to try something different. And, you know, against Italy, they probably thought that was going to be a, a fairly comprehensive victory. Maybe they didn't expect Italy to play as much as they possibly did. And ultimately, you're absolutely right. England played and, you know, when the ball got to the wingers really um, cleanly and with a bit of time, we saw what England can do. And yes, it was against Italy. But I think if England managed to get that execution in terms of getting the ball out to the wingers, few teams in the Six Nations that would be able to defend the likes of May and Watson, you know, when they're playing on form and confidence. So, you know, it's it's it's, it's six of one, isn't it? And the half a dozen of the other, you know, you said off air and I know you bring up in a second, it's really hard to measure yourself in terms of a yardstick against Italy. But I think credit where credit's due to England when it was right, it looked really good. I mean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, a, an interesting viewpoint. I think, you know, England did look better this week. But like you say, you know, and this is no disrespect to Italy, it is difficult to measure yourself against that Italian side. You know, we, we spoke last week that the Italian side that is, is playing at the moment has less caps combined than Sergio Parise, you know. So how can you really judge if you've, improve from the previous week because you know let's be frank England were really poor against Scotland and you know France were fantastic against Italy so I, I think it's, it is difficult to, to judge whether there's been any real marked improvement when you're playing a, a team like that what I would say is that there was definitely more intention and I think that's a you know really nice to see I thought George Ford played really well and sort of typified that I think he moves the ball much better uh, Farrell, there seems to be something around him at the moment. I, I don't know what is going on with him. Uh, he's, you know, this fantastic servant for the country, but I think Eddie's got a real problem with Owen Farrell at the moment. Yeah, and it's funny, obviously, it's a conversation that you've had with us as a collective, our, our, our group of friends, fairly regularly. And it's something that you've almost foreseen for a, for a long period. The question, I think, every time... It's, it's come up that I've, I've, I've put to you is, you know, if Farrell, who else would we maybe consider as a captain? Because obviously Farrell has those leadership qualities and he's had that responsibility as captain for such a long time that potentially some of the players that could have fit that mould haven't had the opportunity to. So maybe there's no one underneath who's ready to take the captaincy uh, seriously and, and, and move forward. And at international level, losing that identity that can have a really negative effect in terms of win-loss ratio etc. See I think there's a question that can be asked there is that 
does a player make a captain or does the captain make the player? And I think in some instances, it can be that the captain makes the player. So I think, you know, there is there is candidates there. I think Maru Itoje is number one candidate, I think, to take over as captaincy. I always prefer a forward as captain. But then again, you've got to look at guys who you think are going to be there for years to come. I think Tom Curry's going to be there for a long, long time. Is he a candidate for the captaincy? Sam Underhill, you know, these sorts of guys. Do they, you know, is there a possibility that one of these guys could take on the captaincy and really, you know, take England forward? And that's not to say that Owen Farrell hasn't taken England forward, but I just wonder if the position he's in now, you know, he's 30 years old. Would we rather see him just concentrate on the things that he does best? And the things that he does best normally are his goal kicking and he's kicking out of hand. But those things at the moment don't seem to be there. So I think it's difficult to justify his selection in that team at the moment. Do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, I do. And I think actually the inclusion of Slade this weekend personifies that because ultimately having free playmakers is unnecessary. Having free playmakers against Italy is super unnecessary. And it almost feels as though in terms of what he can action on the field and what he can influence within the field on the field, that felt out Slade this weekend, which means actually, is he surplus to requirements at that point? I think so. Surplus to requirements, yeah, obviously, quite possibly. You know, I think we are at that position. And maybe not surplus to requirements for a considerable length of time, but I think surplus to requirements for the moment. You know, there's nothing to say that if he goes off and plays some rugby at Saracens when they eventually actually get to play some rugby this year, which it looks like the championship is finally going to go ahead, I think, starting in March. If he gets a bit of rugby played, finds a bit of form and then comes back into the team. But ultimately, I think that this could be used as an opportunity to, to try and galvanise him and to try and bring him back a stronger player because ultimately, I think he's going to be there for that next World Cup. And we need to make sure that we have got the very best Owen Farrell. Um, and, you know, we spoke about Owen Farrell last week and I don't want people to think we're just going to bag on a guy every week. But, you know, he is probably the easy target at the moment because he's he's the captain, you know, and he's the one that's not playing well. And I think that's sort of typified in that stupid late tackle on Stephen Varney. You know, why was he not simbined? That, and I think, you know, you talk about rubber the green earlier. That is a moment in the game. England got a try from that, didn't they? You know, England, England scores and Stephen Varney is on the floor from a late hit. You know, why is it not brought back and why is Owen Farrell not punished for it? Owen Farrell has a target for teenagers this this past season gone, hasn't he? Joking aside, you know, it, it's it's something that initial sort of response to that particular challenge, if we're going to highlight it, I, I did think it was play on. In slow-mo, obviously, it was clearly late and he knew what he was doing, which I, I can see sort of both sides. For me, not a yellow card, but certainly maybe a penalty. And like you said, two phases later, length of the field intercept by Watson and it was a brilliant try and not taking any anything away from Watson. You know, he's on the field for that reason. But rubber the green is is something that, you know, if Owen Farrell is making silly, unnecessary judgment calls in terms of the game, that again, against a different team and maybe again with a different ref, that could be severely punishing. And it's a matter of time until it could affect, you know, the outcome of a game. Absolutely. And also what you've got to think as well is remember, he's the captain. So if he's doing that, is he influencing the people around him to behave like that? You know, he's meant to be that that leader on the pitch. And I don't want the captain of England rugby to be doing foolish stuff like that. Because like you say, you know, World Cup final comes around, he does something like that. That could feasibly cost England the game. So, you know, let's not 
dwell on it too much. I think, you know, there is a, an opportunity possibly at some point to, to consider leaving him out of, certainly of the starting lineup, maybe not dropping him completely, but leaving him out of the starting lineup at, at some point moving forward. I, I think I personally would like to see that, but let's see what happens. A couple of players that I really wanted to pick out from England actually were, I thought Johnny Hill, I thought Luke Cowan-Dickey, and I thought Henry Slade were all absolutely fantastic. The extra effect... Potentially, I think England are playing a very similar mould. They're looking to hold that attritional game, looking to push teams back into the 22 and really grind them down. And, and that's the way that they played for the past sort of two seasons or so. That being said, it was interesting to see sort of how that married up to, you know, a more attacking focused England, which we saw. And actually, it goes to show that they adapted their attack quite nicely. Although I, th- I still think England are lacking that sort of a- attacking identity. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. We've spoken earlier that we liked England's attacking intent, but it seems to be the intent is there, but the execution maybe isn't always quite there. And that, that's what England have got to work on. They've got to work on executing these attacking plays. What I did love, though, is, you know, five metres out, Cowan Dickey, ball at his feet, tapping it and going, because that is what we've seen from Exeter these last couple of years, and it's been really, really effective. So my next question to you is, would you like to see more of these extra boys getting a chance? You Simmons brothers, they're probably the, the two big names that have, have been left out. I say two big names, just one name, two guys. But, you know, Joe Simmons led Exeter to a, a European and league double. Is he the man that could possibly come in and play 10 for England if we're not going to go with Farrell and if people out there don't think Ford is good enough to carry that forward? I think it's almost an embarrassment of riches from an England perspective. There's so many... Uh, fly halves at the moment and I think Umaga obviously has been earmarked and I think that's probably because Eddie sees him in that similar sort of 10-12 hybrid model as as Faz that being said it's, it's sort of harsh not to say Simmons deserves a chance and you know in the same vein it's probably harsh to say Smith doesn't deserve a chance Eddie does what Eddie does and Eddie chooses who Eddie wants to choose but how long can England sustain a winning mentality a winning team if you know, you're not starting to blood the players. The point that you made in the first um, preview. So I think it's something where there definitely requires a balance. And I think, you know, if you're looking at that centre role and the fly half as two separate entities, which they are typically, you probably should start looking at a fly half who could play 10 effectively. I mean, on the other side, you said Sam Simmons. I'm pretty sure he scored 11 tries in nine games for the Premiership at the mo- in the Premiership at the moment for Exeter. What more does he want? You know, it, it, I, I love the first try that he scored in this season. He scored two tries. The second try, he did, are you not entertained? He, that was his celebration. And, and he's right. Like, are you not entertained? What more do you want from me? Yeah, I think what I'd like to see from Eddie Jones or hear from Eddie Jones, as you say, is that why is he not picking Sam Simmons? Give the guy some, you know, something to work on. Say to him, this is the reason I'm not picking you. Now, he may be doing that behind the scenes. We don't know. He could be speaking to Sam Simmons on a regular basis and saying, look, Sam, I'm not picking you for reasons X, Y, and Z, you know, and I can't think off the top of my head what those reasons might be because to me, Sam Simmons looks like the complete player. Possibly a bit lightweight, maybe, but I think that's a little bit unfair. I think we're moving into an age now where back rows are a lot more dynamic and they're not necessarily these great big lumps that they have been in in the previous decade. So I would say that was unfair. I, I, I don't know, mate. I, I, I can't work out why Sam Simmons cannot get into this England squad. There's definitely a chicken and the egg paradox in terms of Sam Simmons and how he scores his tries because 
is he in the position to score tries because that fits Exeter's mould in terms of getting the penalty at set piece, kicking it, getting the penalty at set piece and, you know, scoring the try off the back of a scrum or lying out wherever it might be. Is it because he has physically the ball more than he might get in the international uh, scene? Or is it because he's just that talented? And actually, I think you hit the nail on the head. If you want a big ball-carrying number eight and you want to find a replacement from Billy, there's two players that come to mind. One is Nathan Hughes, who has had a resurgence over the past season at Bristol. Second one is Don Brandt. And if you're not picking players that fit the same mould of the team, what is it that you're looking for? Yeah, again, really interesting points. I think Nathan Hughes, you're right. Uh, resurgence at Bristol, he's been absolutely brilliant for them. Don Brandt has been one of those guys, again, for the last couple of years, I think has had people scratching their heads as to why he's not being looked at. You know, I don't think that Eddie owes it to the fans to come out and explain his selection policies every single time he picks and doesn't pick someone. But I think it would be good to know from a fan's perspective that he is actually actively having these discussions with the players so that they know what they need to do to improve, to try and get, get picked. And it's like you said a couple of minutes ago, you know, England have this embarrassment of riches. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens moving forward. I don't think anything's going to change in the, in the immediate future. We might see some changes, hopefully, in autumn, but we'll see. And I suppose moving on to Italy, as an Englishman, you know, was there anything that particularly impressed you? Was there anything that, you know, you were quite happy to see from Italy? I like that 9-10 combination, actually. You know, we spoke about this the other week, and I think, you know, adding Pelledri back in there at eight will make a real difference as well. But I really like that Stephen Varney, uh, Paolo Garbisi uh, combination. I think they look like they could be Italy's 9-10 and 10 combination for the next 10 years. They're young enough to do it, and they look good enough to do it. So it'd be interesting to see. I just hope that Italy stick with them, because Italy have had a tendency, I think you'll agree, over the last certainly maybe seven or eight years that if a couple of these players have the odd bad game they suddenly panic and drop them and I would urge Italy just to stick with them because I think that they are certainly players for the future and, and I was really obviously uh, impressed with the way that they played I spoke last week about Brex Ignacio Brex I really really like him I think he's a really good player so it's nice to see him as well I think the thing for Italy is that again they've got to try and find a way to compete better at set pieces that has been their downfall I think for the last five six years ever since you know the likes of Castro Giovanni retired they've not been able to compete at the set piece and if they can sort that out and they stick with these young guys I think they've got a chance of finally moving forward after five or six years yeah I think the set piece uh, you hit the nail on the head last week uh, there was massive issues at line out there was definitely massive issues at the scrum but they competed against England they didn't lose their own scrum um, I don't think they won. Oh, no, they did. They won the last scrum of the game when England had it on the five. So they actually net one penalty from the scrum. So if they can keep that level of competency against a team like England, that bears well. Obviously, Scotland, I, I mentioned it last week, they probably have the strongest scrum at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see sort of how the youngsters fare against Scotland. And I think obviously Ireland, you know, anything that has a, a player like Furlong, it's going to be a long day. Um, so if, if, if they can play well against those sort of calibre of teams, you know, they're in good stead. One player that I've mentioned in our last podcast, which I was really, really happy to see, albeit for, I think he got 13 or 14 minutes, was Federico Mori. And he came on, obviously set up the second try for Italy. I think that run, he broke three or four tackles and he got the offload uh, for Tommy Allen just to, just to run it in. He's a player who, I said it last week, 
fantastic physical attributes. Really interesting to see sort of how he develops as a player. And I said, I mentioned it to you off air and I wish I mentioned it to you on air. But if he manages to develop his offloading game is what I said, he could be one of the best players in the world. And it was really nice to see him drag in, you know, three players, get the offload and you know, Tommy Allen could have walked that in. The elements are there, I agree, but it's still sort of positions that need building on. It'd be interesting to see sort of how the under-20s fare. They played particularly well against France um, a few weeks back. I watched that game where France won 25-24 with the last kick of the game. It was a drop goal. I say last kick, it was actually, eight, I think it was 86 minutes in uh, the game. So there's definite improvement from an underage level, but you're right. Like there's there needs to stop this sort of panic cancel culture, even in Italy where a player's done something, you know, perceptually wrong and they've dropped them so start integrating the youngsters give them a bit of time build their confidence maybe take away social media because everyone likes to pick on Italy and and see sort of what these guys can do in the 2023 World Cup yeah I think intent is going to be my word of the day because I'm going to use the same word to describe it so they have that attacking intent and it was really nice to see actually do you know what I thought it was a reasonably entertaining game for the most part I thought it was two teams that evidently wanted to go out and try and run the ball which was nice to see especially from an England point of view but you know, we're talking about Italy now. It was nice to see them move the ball. They looked Italy looked dangerous when they when they move it. You know, and it all comes through Garbisi. You know, he's a young lad. He's a really good player, and I think I've got high hopes for him vicariously through yourself that he he's got a real chance of being a superstar. I think in the game, and he's the sort of guy that Italy, it's Italian fans. The the union can can rally behind and have as the poster boy for the next 10, 15 years. I think Mazzi, um, Andrea Mazzi from. Previously, Wasps has now gone to Benetton Chorizo, hit the nail on the head. And what he said was, right, Italy aren't producing the talent um, in terms of the talent pool that England produced. For every hundred, you know, international level players that England produce, Italy are maybe producing five, is what he said. And what he's calling for is more players to play in the Premiership. And we've seen Minotti move over. We've seen Campagnaro move over. Um, obviously, Pledri was always here and Stephen Varney was always here. But I've just named four of probably Italy's best players. Do you think for Garbisi to make that step up, to be that world beater, and, you know, you're not the only person that said it, it's plastered everywhere that he could be, you know, an absolute sensational Diego Dominguez-esque type 10. Do you think it's imperative for him to move over to the Premiership? That's such a difficult question to answer because ultimately I think at the moment, probably yes, he needs to go and play either the top 14 or the Premiership. But having said that, if you want the Italian game to develop itself it's got to develop in Italy as well so you don't necessarily want these players moving and playing abroad you want them to stay in that country and play there I think oh, so difficult I think short term possibly yes he does need to move but I think as a long-term solution that's not the right way for Italian players to go I think they need to like Scotland have done you know Scotland went to two professional teams and a lot of Scottish players have gone back to play in Scotland and look at Scotland now they're a much more much better team they're absolutely well brilliant at the moment um, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, so I'd be interested to see, actually, what you think of that. Do you think he should stick playing in Italy or would you rather him move? Yeah, I, I think it's a question that I'd like to see answered maybe by some of the listeners. But personally, it's something where the nurturing talent from England... Uh, from the, the players in the Premiership is clearly evident. Any player in the Premiership could get called up for England and could do a job. And I think Italy need to have players who have that quality developed in, in leagues like the Premiership where there's definitely that growth mindset and you know the facilities and the infrastructure and the investment in the players. Let's take Argentina, for example. Argentina have played in so many different leagues, but arguably players who, who won against the All Blacks um, in 
the uh, Tri-Nations Cup just gone. They played in the, the Premiership. They played in the French League. And you can definitely see that step up because if they hadn't have played in those leagues, they wouldn't have played a game in probably well over a year for the Hagueras. But they did play that game. And they were playing in su- at, at such a higher competent level that those skills really shone through. And maybe I'm giving you know Argentina some disservice by saying that, but I do think actually some of these players who went on to perform in that game were exposed to a higher level of rugby. So it's interesting to see sort of the balance between the two. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it is a balance. You know, Japan did something slightly different. You know, they called all their players back a year before the World Cup and they were all together in, in that sort of almost like a bubble. I hate the bloody term bubble at the moment as well. I've had enough of it. But, you know, they were all sort of in that bubble, all playing together, all training together. And, and that had a, an effect on them because they made it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. So, you know, there's different philosophies. I think Italy have tried, you know, they haven't been playing in Italy, you know, playing for, for Zebra or playing for Benetton. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's time that some of these guys go and play for for teams in, in the Premiership or in, in France. You know, they're the, the two strongest competitions in the world. So it'd be interesting to see what would happen to Italian rugby at an international level if more of these players did go and do that. Just before we move on to obviously talk about Scotland versus Wales, it would be remiss of us not to mention Johnny May and his acrobatics at the weekend. Do you think it was a case of him watching Louis Rees-Sammet and saying, anything you can do, I can do better? It's interesting, right? So Nigel Owens obviously had some fairly strong talking points about that. I'm not of the same persuasion. I thought that was a brilliant try. That being said, I think there needs to be a question in terms of that rule. How do you adjudge a jump as opposed to a dive? Obviously, what I'm speaking about, for for those of you who don't know, is there's a law stating that you can't jump to avoid a tackle. However, you are allowed to dive for the try line. Obviously, the Italian player was diving in and, you know, there was it was a dive and he you know he dived for the try line so from what i've seen on social media it's quite divided obviously personally from an italian perspective i thought that was a stunning try i thought there's absolutely nothing that could be done sporandio bless him tried to, to come across and you know he may have hit him and got him into touch but then at that point if he's diving if it's perceived that he's diving is that a yellow card and a penalty try anyway or did he jump and johnny may gets penalized and Italy get the kick it's 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 it, again it's six of one and you know half a dozen of the other at what point do we start looking at those rules and say okay this happened in the six nations but what happens if that was a world cup final what sort of discussion should we be having then i think ultimately for me and you know we've talked about this quite a few times on the podcast since we started is that we want to be entertained and that for me was a beautiful piece of entertainment you know the athleticism to be able to do that they allow that sort of stuff in rugby league, the NRL, all the time. You know, so why would we want to take that away from rugby union? Once again, it would just look like rugby union, bit boring, leave stuff like that in. You know, that to me, it wasn't dangerous because the reason why they don't allow people to jump into tackles is because it's dangerous and it is dangerous. But that's because it's dangerous to the defender. I don't think that was dangerous to the defender. He was diving over the player to try and place the ball down. I, I don't see that as a problem personally. And I think if you would start chalking stuff like that off, it would be a real, real shame. I think there was a circumstance last season, correct me if I'm wrong, but Manitou Alangi on uh, George North, very similar so- situation, but Manu actually made contact. And yes, okay, you could say that you know, he wasn't in control and he was diving, but he was diving to stop 
a try. You know, he put his all into that. And I think that red card was incredibly marginal. I do think it was a red card. It was incredibly marginal. But he also tackled the player in the air. And that was one of the considerations the ref made before giving the card. So in if, if we're talking about a linear, you know, everyone wants consistency. Everyone talks about consistency from a refing perspective. You know, if we're talking about the same sort of situation and using that as almost like a case study to this particular incident, that would have been a penalty try and a yellow card. So it's almost in the benefit of the Italian player not to have touched him. So just want to put that one to bed. Brilliant try. Fair play, Johnny May. Yep. And then obviously the second game we had on Saturday was Scotland versus Wales. I can't believe we're having to talk about this again. But another contentious red card. What are your thoughts? <laughs> every, every, I think every sign-off um, I've had has almost jinxed this, saying <laughs> I hope we have no other contentious issues to talk about the following week. But, you know, today it, it seems like it's just going to continue, unfortunately. I think letter of the law. It, it was a red card and I actually watched it again this morning because the time of the incident I said that there wasn't too much you know in it and we were watching it on zoom there wasn't too much in it but then the reverse angle that it was a clear red card it was dangerous he's gone he's been summoned by the sighting uh, commission today it'd be for, for tomorrow it'd be really interesting to see the outcome of that so just so you know we're, we're recording this on a Monday the sighting commission, obviously a judge on a Tuesday. So it'd be really interesting to see if he gets a similar sort of penance to um, to Piero Armani. I think, you know, it's something that's more of a systemic issue. I think it's something that the rut laws need looking at because we're going to find this happening all the time. You know, now that this precedent's been set, you know, in the Six Nations, we're going to see this more in leagues across the world. And I think you speak a lot about intent and obviously intent's been taken out of the equation. He didn't mean to hit someone in the head. I know obviously sentiment be very different if, you know, he actually injured himself and, you know, he, he's never able to play rugby again. But those provisions are in place, obviously, for player safety. Player safety has been announced by World Rugby as, you know, paramount. It's what they're, they're striving for. They're looking to try and protect the players in any other way. But there comes to a time where, if you want to see an engagement into a ruck like a scrum, I think it's going to kill the game, genuinely. Because right now, that contest at the ruck is probably one of the most attractive parts of the game for me. So the risk of contradicting myself from last week. So I, if you remember, I said that I think what is more dangerous in, in rugby at the moment is when you know a ruck is worn and, and players come charging in from, from 10, 15 metres away. And that's essentially what we had this time, although I do think that the circumstances were slightly different. I wonder if the referees have possibly got to do a little bit more because, you know, when Jones is over the ball, was he necessarily in a legal position? And, you know, Xander Fagerson is coming in to clear him out. In real time, mate, I thought it looked like a textbook clean out. I thought it looked absolutely brilliant. If I was, you know, obviously when you, with the benefit of slowing it down in slow motion, but if I was watching it with a, with a young lad, I'd be saying that's how you clear someone out because to me it looked like a textbook clean out. I just wonder if possibly... Have referees maybe got to do a little bit more to try and protect the players? Yeah, I think there's an element of that, but I think you hit the nail on the head. If he had hit him anywhere but the head, uh, I suppose obviously you can come in and talk about control. I guarantee that would not have been looked at. If he had hit him shoulder down as opposed to shoulder up, he did hit him in, in, in the face. That wouldn't even have been looked at, you know, control or no control, because it happens almost at every ruck. It's just the fact that the content, the contact, excuse me, was made to his face. So, you know, it's something where 
he didn't mean to do. He put his head down and, 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 you know, he was doing, like you said, what everyone expects him to do. But I understand from the law's perspective why these laws are in play. And I think actually if it happened to, you know, a younger player, if it didn't happen to a prop, I think people may have a different opinion on it. The fact that it's happened to a prop and they're used to that sort of impact might be different. If it happened to, let's say, young Stephen Varney and you have a, you know, 22 stone prop running at you all out and it hits him in, in the head that could have, you know, quite a powerful or quite an impactful, like, um, long-term injury on him. So I understand why they're there, but typically there needs to be some common sense really, doesn't there? Yeah, you know, I think you mentioned a few minutes ago, and I think you're right, they need to look at the laws around the rock to try and prevent this thing from happening in the future because we've had two incidents in two weeks. I think they were slightly different, but we've had, you know, two red cards for reasonably similar incidents, let's say. I just wonder if there's a possibility, and I know referees have already got a lot to look at and, and ARs have got a lot to look at, but is there a way whereby referees can see this incident building and blow the whistle before it has chance to to transpire, you know, he sees a player charging in. If he blows the whistle, then hopefully the player stops. I don't know. That's just me throwing an idea out there. It's not a great idea. I understand that. But I think you're right. They certainly need to look at the laws. What I would say is, and this is where I've seen a lot of people online, if that is a judge to be a red card fence for contact to the head, why is Wynne Jones not taken off for a head injury assessment? Yeah, so... It's interesting because the HIA independent doctors there, obviously with the video ref and apparently some information that came to light today on um, social media, for me at least, there's multiple different pragmatic decision makers within that. So there's it's a, it's a multi-stage evaluation of the player's safety. So these independent doctors obviously watch it multiple times. They have, you know, a few eyes on it it's not just one person that judges it and that one person then decides um you know albeit the ref or the person who's in charge in in terms of the hia doctor let's just call him the independent doctor from here on out the independent doctor decides to let the ref know that there was significant injury you know maybe they look at how the player reacts on the floor or if there's a mobile Uh, to be honest with you the considerations that come into play i'm not too sure on because i'm not in that position but what i will say is it's looked and it seems it looks like it's a fairly meticulous decision sort of matrix in terms of how they 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 come to the decision of taking a player off and i think in the grand scheme of things he went on and scored a try straight after that didn't he so he was clearly competent enough to to run around and you know do his thing yeah that's an interesting point because i think that you know, there's plenty of people who have been concussed over history and have still been able to go on and, and perform well and do and do things like that. I don't think that should necessarily be taken as a, a given that he's all right. But what I would say is I would take all ambiguity out of it and just say if the offence is a red card decision or even a yellow card, let's go with yellow card, but if it's contact to the head, which, I mean, let's be honest, there's not many yellow cards for that now. It's almost certainly going to be a red card. If it is a red card for contact to the head, the player who's been had that contact made against them, so in this instance, Wynne Jones, must leave the field for HIA for me. That's my personal feeling. And then it takes that ambiguity out of it. Um, you know, like you say, Wynne Jones then goes on to score a try. Do you think that's particularly harsh on Wynne Jones, though, if he, you know, he's in a position where someone's made contact with his head and then he has to be taken off. You know, sometimes that would mean uncontested scrum and there's a team who's particularly dominant in the scrum. You know, you you completely, well, you're effectively taking away part of what makes them them. So do you think it's a way that 
do, do you think it's clearly sort of that black and white? You think if this red card offence, they should be taken off and, you know, to the detriment of the product on the field? Or do you think there needs to be some pragmatism around it like they have now and say, right, okay, let's let's see how he does. And, you know, it, ultimately it's not, oh, we've decided that he's fine. They're still looking at the player and they'll still sort of make a judgment after, you know, after seeing him. He might, he might go in and not know where he is. And obviously there's doctors and the ref sometimes gets involved uh, in terms of seeing sort of how the player's faring. So it's who, who ultimately in your decision needs to make this decision. Do you think it needs to be taken out of the independent doctor's hands and it should be on the ref? Do you think it's on the player? Who, who do you think needs to adjudge these things? Or do you think it just systematically needs to go? I think obviously it depends on the circumstance because it's not always clear cut. You know, you're not always going to have a red card decision that results in a HA. And what I mean by that is, you know, there could be an incident that, you know, is totally accidental that may require a HIA. It's not always going to be a foul play incident like the one we saw at the weekend. But ultimately, if we want to take player welfare seriously, then we need to look at that as a way forward that if a if, you, if the referee is a judging that the contact is so severe that he feels the need to give a red card for it, which is the worst punishment you can have in the game, I don't understand how the player who's been hit can be allowed to stay on the pitch without any form of assessment from a doctor on the side of the pitch whatsoever. That's why we brought HIAs in. Yeah, very fair comment. Yeah, I, I can't answer that. I think for me, we're talking about interruption to the game and, you know, n- no offence to Jones, but if it was a player, uh, with, you know, let's say it was bigger or Sheedy, having a player like that gone for 10 minutes, as it's a prop, we're only talking about uncontested scrums. So I think it's it's something where, you know, it could have a very real impact in terms of the product on the field. And I think a lot of the traditionalists, would be so against that because the game is evolving you know player welfare is paramount and it's always going to be and that actually you know for what it's worth i think it's a very fair comment and for me i hope it's not included in the game because i think actually that's that that takes away another level of fluency to the game i quite like the fact that if a player gets knocked in the head and you know they're completely coherent they're able to play that's fine by me because why should they potentially be impacted by someone else's foul play like that that for me is you know it's it's sort of that double-edged sword yes you're doing it for their safety but ultimately if they're completely fine why should they be taken off the pitch and yeah for me I think the product has changed so much I think it might alienate some of the older viewers having something like that in play yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to tread over all ground, you know, I've just spoken about my thoughts on it, but I just think ultimately if we want to be serious about player welfare, then that's the, the route we possibly have to go down. I think you will need to look at the laws around the rook. I think we've we've mentioned that. Um, and yeah, I just think we have to see what the lawmakers think and how can we, for me, player welfare has to be the top priority. Um, and I think in, in a situation like that, and actually, to be fair, Mike, in that situation with a 20-stone prop charging in at that sort of speed, how he wasn't even considered for HIA, to, to me, what independent doctor thinks that a direct contact to the head from a 20-stone prop doesn't consider a head, in, head injury assessment? I don't know. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, but I'd be interested for them to give their thoughts possibly on that as to why they thought that it wasn't a head injury assessment worthy incident. Yeah, I think the only other way I envision what you're suggesting happens is if there is like a, a prelim HIA. So an independent doctor goes on um, opposed to, let's say, um, the, the physio staff. So an independent doctor goes on, starts doing small checks, maybe ask them, you know, 
questions about who's the queen and you know typical sort of concussion tests that you know i've had in the past i'm sure you've had them before as well playing so have have those simple sort of questions and if they you know if there's any sort of questions about it then, then take them off for a full hia that's fine i i agree with that but for me i think it might impact the game more than it already has and for me i think yeah i i just think starting to alienate some of the traditionalists that can only end badly. Yep, I think your comments are fair, but I do think it's something that does need looking at. Um, just on Scotland, do you think it's fair for, for me to say that if Scotland wants to win a championship, they've got to find a way to win games like that on Saturday? No, I, I think that's incredibly fair. I, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. And they clearly play really well to a game plan. They had a game plan against England. They executed it really, really well. But it's about adapting. You know, I said this last week and so many tries come from broken play nowadays. And that's because attacking coaches go on the fact that an unorganised defence is the easiest way to score, particularly how well defences are drilled at test level. And having that ability to adapt, and again, I'm going to use this last week against France, they didn't adapt to the French kicking game, which disorganised their their defensive line and, and you know they concede a load of tries so having that ability to adapt that for me is really important you know between a good team and the best team so I think it's you know really interesting to see sort of how they work this out yeah you know I don't want to take anything away from Wales I think they are well <laughs> I am staggered that they are two from two I must be perfectly honest so I guess I've just taken something away from them but I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that before the tournament, I don't think even Welsh fans were expecting too much from them. But they seem to have developed into quite a sort of gritty team that you just can't sort of shake off. You know, they sort of, they hang around and they they, they, they niggle and they, they stay in games. And when they've got somebody with the ability of Louis Samet on the wing, they can still hurt teams. Yeah, Louis Rees Samet. I, I said I, I sent a WhatsApp to you saying I feel like a proud dad because I actually been calling for him to play for England. Although you know I'm not sure if it's eligibility or if Eddie may have said something silly. He's not playing for England, but you know in 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 his Premiership debut, I thought he was sensational. I think he scored. I think he scored two tries in his Premiership debut and he was brilliant then. And, you know, there's always a question about, you know, Premiership level, if they step up to uh, test level, international level, how how they're going to fare. And I don't think it matters if you have his pace. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. You know, I think he's just, you know, obviously Reese Lightning seems to be his nickname, uh, which he raised a smile at the weekend in a pre-match interview. But, you know, I think he's a really exciting player, actually, you know, and we mentioned this on our week one review. Josh Adams is going to find it very difficult to get back into that team now because I think Harkenny played well. I think Liam Williams also played well. So you've got a back three there that he's playing very, very well. And actually, don't change your winning, winning formula. If you're winning games, keep those guys in there. You know, I think the back row is really, really functional. I think they, you know, always compete at the breakdown. They make it very difficult for teams attacking. And, and they've built, like I said, they've built something quite quite gritty and, and seem to just have this will that they just will not go away. Um, and, you know, I sort of take back what I said in the first episode where I said that I thought they'd finish bottom. You know, how wrong did I get that? I'm not always right, believe it or not. So, yeah, they've sort of proven me wrong two from two. Yeah, 
I think they've proven a lot of people wrong. And I think if the Welsh fans are very honest with themselves, I think few, if any, thought they'd be two for two, particularly against a strong Scotland side after, you know, how they dismantled England last week. That being said, I think it's an interesting team. And I think Wayne Pivak's actually got something there. I don't know how it's going to sort of transition as, you know, players come and go. They've definitely got players at, you know, the latter end of their career. And I'm not sure what sort of depth they have to replace those players. But, you know, party whilst the partying's good. Uh, because I think what we'll find in the next few seasons, if they don't start integrating some of the youth and taking risks, I think what's going to happen is we're going to find a Wales team who are in the same position they were last year. So yes, you know, all the Welsh fans can say last year was a transitional period. They're still trying to find the way that they play. The first few games, Wayne Pivak was in charge against the Barbarians, against Italy, was definitely still Gatland era Wales. And then obviously the different, let's say, DNA came in. And I don't think the Welsh team particularly adapted well. For me, I think it's something where they really need to now start using this as a uh, opportunity to start looking to the future. Because as I said last year, Italy under 20s beat Wales and, and beat the Welsh team comprehensively. I watched that game. It was absolutely comprehensive. And if they're struggling at the underage, at, at, excuse me, under 20s level, you know, I'm, I'm sort of concerned from a Welsh perspective from that side. Yeah, so I actually think now there's a really interesting undertone going into this uh, Wales-England game in a couple of weeks' time. You know, you've got this England team that I think people had high expectations for and were expecting them to perform pretty well in this tournament and have flattered to deceive, I think, is a polite way of putting putting it. Um, and you've got this Welsh team that I, I don't even think, you know, the Welsh fans, I've got a, a, a Welsh friend of mine, Rid, who texts me on a regular basis when Wales are on going, looking forward to watching to get beat again today. You know, that's how he has felt over the last 18 months. So, you know, a team that not many people expected much from has performed well enough to win two games. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in that game. In Cardiff, in, in two weeks' time, I think there's a lot of pressure on England, personally, to, to perform. Can I ask a question? And it's a debate that's ongoing online. Do you think Wales would have won without that red card decision? No, I don't think they would, actually. But I don't mean that in the sense that they needed the red card to win the game. That's sort of not what I mean. I think it I think the, it had an effect on Scotland rather than it having an effect on Wales, if that sort of makes sense. I think that it sort of almost, I don't want to say it shattered Scotland's confidence, but I think it had a massive impact on them for the last, what was it, 17, 18 minutes of the game. And I think that, no, I think I think Scotland would have held on to win the game had they remained with 15 on the pitch. But what I would say is, and this is what I mentioned before, if Scotland want to win championships, they have got to find a way of winning games like them, where they find themselves with 15, 16, whatever, how many minutes was to go, with a man down to try and get themselves over the line because the best teams will do that. You know, France, England, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, they will all find a way when, you know, things aren't looking good to still get that win. And that's what Scotland have got to learn to try and do. Because, you know, we've had in the past with Scotland where they've had a big, big win. And then the following week, they go on and lose. And that's exactly what we've had again this time. You know, Scotland were the favourites for this game, really. I think it's a little bit different from, from you know, years of past because typically Scotland will go in from a second game perspective. Let's say there's two games week per week, two test games week per week with a depleted squad or a squad who's tired. And it's actually influenced by the depth of the team that they have. Whereas I think we touched upon it last week. Scotland have 
in incredible depth. Obviously, I know there's a couple of players here and there which have gone um, or, or, or left with injury, I should say, but they have such depth. So I think, you know, in terms of comparing Scotland from this year to years gone, I think last weekend was an unfortunate incident and it'd be interesting to see sort of how they move on from here. And, you know, is, is it going to be something where Gregor Townsend's going to try and sort of change the way they play? Are they actually going to start looking at that rut because, you know, they don't want to be punished with it in the, in the future? Is, is it going to have no impact? And, you know, Scotland are going to go out next week and, and, and sorry, the following week and do a, uh, a jobby. I think it's a difficult one. It, it really is. Yeah, and in a couple of weeks' time, obviously Scotland have got to go to France and obviously play in Paris. And I think, you know, we could feasibly be in a position in a couple of weeks' time where Scotland have lost two out of three and England have won two out of three. And to me, that would seem almost a bit unfair given the way Scotland played against England at Twickenham. But unfortunately, that's the way the game goes. Scotland have got to try and find a way of winning those big, big games like that. Just moving on to talk about, obviously, the final game of the weekend, France versus Ireland. I think in contrast to, obviously, what's just happened with Scotland, I think that watching that game yesterday, France were able to show a level of composure that they haven't shown, in, certainly in recent years, to win a tight game away from home. And that, to me, shows that they really are the real deal. Yeah, so we've been saying over the past couple of podcasts, for those of you who haven't heard, France have got this renewed professionalism. And I think that may be in part to Gautier. Uh, it could be in part to the Sean Edwards effect. It could be in part to, you know, the young crop of World Cup, under 20 World Cup winning players, just having that mentality and that professionalism from an underage level. But something's changed and something has has galvanised this team who, let's be honest, have probably underperformed for the past at least 10 years, maybe more. And it was really refreshing to see. I mean, not to the detriment of Ireland. I think Ireland played extremely well under the circumstances. And actually, you know, if that low try went in, in the, uh, in, in the left corner, it could have been a completely different game. And That was a fabulous piece of defence, wasn't it, by Gail Fiku? Stunning. Absolutely so Actually, to have the awareness to do that, I find just incredible. And, and that was a split second decision. So that was all sort of nature and instinct. And yeah, that, that was just beautiful. I was lost for words at the time and, you know, now it's not any better. But yeah, if Lowe went in and had scored that try, I think we may have seen a very different France. They were still quite conservative. They never really panicked. They had their game plan. They, they executed it well. And that was that was a test game for them. You know, I think it had a very different feel against that Ireland squad because the Irish defence may have been uh, sturdier. You know, maybe they maybe they gave Ireland too much credit, but they, it was definitely slightly more cagier. And I think the first 15, 20 minutes, I got multiple messages saying, you know, this is a nervy France, it's a nervy game. And I think that's, that's quite fair. But, you know, that's actually testament to how much they respect Ireland as a team and how they might see Ireland as a threat moving forward. So, you know, may, maybe Sean Edwards and co see, see see Ireland in a completely different light. And maybe actually casual fans need to start looking at Ireland as a, a team who could compete and in the Six Nations and potentially cause a few, up, a few upsets. For me personally, I thought that France probably had another gear in that game. And I think that actually the scoreline probably, and, you know, it's going to sound harsh, I do, I do think it, it flattered Ireland a little bit, personally. I think if you actually go back and watch the game, France were in pretty much total control for 
the majority of the game. I, I never, Joe, I never at any point felt that France were going to lose that game. And that, that's when you know a team's playing well and playing with confidence and playing with composure. And like you say, test match rugby. You know, how many times would we have seen a French side over the years go out and just fling the ball around, you know, like they have done in the past and, you know, as brilliant French teams have done before, but then suddenly find themselves 12, 13 points down after half an hour away from home. You're not going to win test match rugby, particularly against a team like Ireland from 12 or 13 points down for 20, 25 minutes. It just ain't going to happen. You know, the statistics will show that that doesn't happen in test match rugby. So to have that, again keep repeating myself but to have that level of composure to go there and just to really just totally control the game I think really shows that this French team is building something special I just hope you know we mentioned on the first podcast that we did about Ireland peaking too early before a World Cup I really hope that we're not seeing that from France now you know we're still two and a half years out from World Cup they've got to find a way of keeping the players hungry and keeping that momentum going and not allowing players to believe in their own hype yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We spoke in the first podcast about all eyes being on Ireland going into the 2019 World Cup and, you know, all eyes being on Wales as they achieved, you know, number one in that sham rankings. I, I think, you know, they had all the focus on them, which means all the top teams were looking at ways of breaking down how they play. And you're absolutely right. I think if we're looking at France, I think a lot of eyes are on France, but that doesn't it's, it's it's very different to Ireland, uh, Wales and maybe England post 2019 World Cup because France has this innate ability just to change the way they play. Like they can play front up rugby if needs be. And I think actually if you look at France team gone by, you know, they go for Jouer Jouer and that champagne rugby and you know all the other cliches thrown about French rugby, but they have that innate flair and they have that ability to turn it on if needs be. It's interesting because it's the same sort of argument about Fiji. If Fiji had any structure at test level, they would be undeniably the best team in the world because they have that ability to play front-up rugby, but they just, they're just disorganised. Whereas France are very similar. They, they just needed that organisation. I think they have it now. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see sort of how, how much their game evolves or changes. I've got a feeling they're going to show what they want to show in each game and nothing more nothing less very similar to England in that up until sort of the semi-final they just did what they needed to do to get done and then you know the the ace out of the sleeves came out and they demolished New Zealand mm. I think the only blot on the copybook really for France was the silly yellow card for that trip you know LaRue I don't know what he was thinking you know obviously trying to pull the wool over the referee's eyes and the assistant referees but you know with the amount of cameras the TMOs you're not going to get away with that in 2021 I thought it was really silly, you know, and if they go on and, you know, like we spoke about earlier with Owen Farrell, you know, the late tackle on Varney, you know, if if LaRue were to do that in a World Cup semi-final or final against someone like New Zealand, New Zealand will punish them for that and they'll score two, three tries while he's off the pitch. So I hope that Sean Edwards and Gartier sort of come down on him on that one and make sure he understands that he can't do that on, on a rugby pitch because it's, it could cost them. You know, they were lucky that it didn't cost them this this weekend just gone, but, you know, I think it, it could cost them in the future. From an Irish perspective, I think it was really nice to see Billy Burns bounce back. You know, we spoke last week and I sort of gave quite a passionate speech about social media and, and the trouble that he went through post the Wales game, but I think he for the 55, 60 minutes he was on the pitch, I thought he did a, a really solid job. And I think moving forward, I would probably like to see him and James Gibson Park 
playing as the nine and ten combination. Yeah, I agree. I think he was brilliant. Um, I think Sexton still managed to sneak his way onto the pitch, albeit as a water boy. Just can't help himself, can he? Um, but yeah, I think it's it. They were brilliant. They were really brilliant. That that Gibson Park. Has has a massive amount of like rugby IQ and awareness of the other players on on the pitch. There's a couple of times there was a nice interchange with Lowe near the end of the match that you know he just knew where he was and how he was going to play that. That they were literally teetering on on the edge of touch and they managed to make sort of 30 40 yards off that interchange together. And if they have players who understand, you know, that's to that extent against a team like France, um, that could have been sort of very, very different against a, a team less well-drilled, um, certainly, you know, against the Sean Edwards defence. So, yeah, it, they have, they definitely have more of an attacking identity. And I think this is sort of a fear from so many Irish fans. I think that was the best Ireland have played in well over a year, well over a year. I think that's the best I think I've seen Ireland play in, in, in 18 months. And they have a platform now. You know, they they have different options and, you know, it'd be interesting to see sort of what your thoughts are on Ireland because we spoke about France and it's quite easy to speak about France. They give us a lot to speak about. What do you think about Ireland? Yeah, I mean, I'll just pick up quickly what you say there. It's so easy to wax lyrical about France, isn't it? They just, you know, I text you, I think, pretty much every week saying they're just an absolute joy to watch. From an Irish perspective, I, I, I struggle with Ireland. I really do. You know, like you say, I think that was their best performance in 18 months and they still lost at home, you know, by two points. And even, you know, I'll go so far as to agree with you that it was their best performance, but I still don't think they, they looked that good, really. I, I don't know what, what Ireland's problem is. I think that they're probably in a bit of a transitional period. And I know that's probably a bit of a lazy thing for me to say and a bit easy for me to say, but... I kind of do feel that they're in that sort of position when they've had guys like Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton that have been sort of stalwarts for the last 10, 12 years. It's really difficult when those guys are, they're evidently coming to the end of their careers, you know, and they're, they're probably not as, as match sharp as they were five or six years ago. You know, they're, they're a bit older. And I just think that, yeah, I think that they, Ireland are in for a bit of a struggle. I think, you know, they'll, they'll win a few games here and there, but I don't, I, ultimately I don't see them challenging for a, a Six Nations title for a couple of years. I think you're completely right. And I completely agree with what you're saying in regards to Ireland. You know, they've definitely got some players at the end of the career. Very similar to what I said about Wales earlier. The one difference I'll bring out is I think the Irish talent pool at underage level is, is pretty solid. And I think if you look at the under-20s and what results they tend to achieve, I think they're actually in good stead. They just need to start you know, finding a way of integrating it. And maybe that comes down to a coach who's happy to put it all on the line and just bring in young players and, you know, take the brunt of losing for a few years or a few matches or a year, or however long it takes for them to finally win. Or they're going to be in a position where I, I agree with you. I think, you know, it's going to take a lot longer for them to, to, to actually do something with this group of players. Yeah, so for me, I'll be brutally honest about Ireland. I struggle to see them winning a Six Nations in this World Cup cycle now. I, I can't see where it's going to come from because I think France are so far ahead. Of, so Fra and France are so far ahead of everybody else at the moment. I think, obviously, Scotland are playing very well. I think England will come back stronger eventually. You know, that's not to say that, you know, they may not win a, another title before the, the World Cup. But I think from an Irish perspective, I think they're at best probably the, the fourth best team in the competition at the moment. Yeah, like I said, it'd be interesting to see. I think I actually do see progress. And like I said, it's the best they've seen, I've seen them play in a while. And it's not 
just because I think they've underperformed the past 18 months. It's because I think they're finally understanding how Andy Farrell wants to play. And I think it is starting to, to show. That being said, we'll see how they play in a couple of weeks time because you know it could be a false dawn just you know one game that I pulled out I will say that it looked promising from my side so coming to the end of the podcast mate have you got any final thoughts for this weekend that we've just witnessed it's a shame that Scotland had that red card because I was really looking forward to that arm wrestle in Paris and who knows maybe maybe Scotland can come in and you know, cause an upset in a few uh, few weeks' time. But yeah, you know, the quality of rugby in general was far more enjoyable than the opening weekend, in my opinion. I think, you know, we looked at the uh, Wales-Scotland game. I thought that was a brilliant contest throughout the whole match. And even yesterday, you know, I thought yesterday was a brilliant game, albeit maybe slightly more for the rugby purists than, than um, the, the previous couple of games. But yeah. Really, really enjoyed the games. I think there's a lot to take out of all games and it'd be interesting to see sort of how the players and teams adapt because they've got two weeks now. They're all going to remain in a bubble. I don't imagine any of them are going home and breaking that bubble. They might do. I might be completely incorrect, but they have this two weeks to train and see what they can do and really excited to see it. Well, thanks very much for your thoughts today, mate. That's been another good another good chat. Um, just to remind everyone, obviously this weekend there is no Six Nations um, the tournament will return in two weeks' time. So for this week, Mike and myself are going to be joined by members of our friends and family, and we're going to be doing a discussion about the ring fencing of the Premiership Rugby. And if you guys want to put forward some of your ideas or topics of discussion about the promotion, relegation, slash ring fencing, question mark, <laughs> um, please feel free to send uh, some, some information to the rugby posts with an S at gmail.com we'd be more than happy to discuss some of the points that you guys raised because i think there's so much to talk about and i've been saying to josh this is one of the podcasts i've been really excited to to discuss because there's so many different avenues and rabbit holes uh, in regards to this discussion and you know it's not as simple just to talk about sort of the promotion the relegation and you know question on ring fencing because you know it's so much deeper seeded so really looking forward to that really looking forward to having the boys on as well and yeah Yes, so I hope you've enjoyed listening today. Just we're hoping to get that podcast out on Saturday. Obviously, Mike and myself are still working full time, so we don't always find the time to to be able to get these podcasts sort of recorded and edited and out for you guys to listen to. So, you know, we really appreciate everyone that's sort of stuck with us so far and, and listened to these podcasts. You know, we, we put a lot of work into it and, you know, it's been a, a really sort of good project for us to sink our teeth into and I think we're both enjoying it. So, you know, just a big thank you to everyone who's listening. So that's it then, mate. That's number three done in the books and we'll be returning hopefully on Saturday with our panel show on the ring fence in the Premiership. So I've been your host, Josh Matthews. I've been joined by Mike Petretta and that was rugby. <laughs>